Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. This is Mindspace, and I'm Jeff Boucher. Welcome back. Today's guest, we're going to be talking to Kyle Newman, an old friend of mine who uh, you may know from Fanboys, uh, the great 2009 comedy, and uh, you'll be hearing a lot more about with some of his new projects, but I'll let him talk about that. And uh, once again, welcome to Mindspace. How are you? Good, man. It's great to see you. Great to see you and welcome to the show. This is, uh, so this is Mind Space and um, I just talk to people about uh, creativity and, and about uh, what they're working on and, and, uh, it's, and it's been a nice opportunity to see a lot of old friends. I love it. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so and uh, a new father again. So congratulations to you. Yep, thank you. Yeah. Number three. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot and uh, you just wrapped. Can you tell us what you wrapped on? Yeah, so I was in Toronto filming a new film for BuzzFeed Studios and Lionsgate called One Up. Uh, it's an esports comedy okay. set in the competitive world of collegiate gaming. Oh, wow. And it's got, you know, wonderful, empowering themes, and it's pretty hysterical, too. It's got a great cast. It stars um, Ruby Rose and Paris Burrells and um, Taylor Zaka Perez and just a lot of, lot of up-and-comers, too, which are hysterical. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Ruby Rose, she has some. She has a uh, the it factor, you know. She has like a real sort of interesting she's, quality. She's really special. She's a gamer herself, mm-hmm. and once she came aboard the film, uh, I just couldn't imagine it with anybody else. Just she's a perfect mentor, teacher character for the younger girls. Hmm. She's totally authentic because she loves this stuff, and she's just got a great spirit about her. And it's something different for her too, considering yeah. she's done a lot of action. Yeah, and um, I think she just wanted to go do something where she could have fun and, and be more herself. Yeah, and, and I'm sure for her back, it's, it's probably good. I know she has a lot of back issues and stuff, right? Yeah, and she was just very thankful to be doing the movie, and we were thankful she was in it. I just had a, a great time collaborating with her. She's really funny, you yeah. know, very gifted and funny. It was great to play with her. She always came to set with, with improv and ideas, which I always encourage as soon as we nail our take. I give actors the freedom to 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 dive deeper and expand on what's there and yeah. blow me away. And it's always fun to, to have the time to do that. So yeah, she was, she has a skill for it. You know, it's, it's interesting because it, it requires like a, a real confidence and, and uh, security on both sides, uh, you know, for director and actor to have that, that uh, the capacity to, to look for those moments like that, to, to have that freedom. Um, what, uh, what have you learned, you know, just as a filmmaker through the years, like, how do you uh, get to that place with actors? Like, do you, do you find it gets easier and easier to, to get to that place? Or do you, 
find it's uh, kind of a moving target. It's a moving target and it's not that it doesn't get easier because you do pick up a skill for it and you can see things and feel things, but you have to know when is appropriate and that's where the experience comes in when it's not and you have to balance it based on the macro picture of your day and your schedule, how much time you really have to play and allocate yourself. And if you're gonna do that or you're gonna go down one of those rabbit holes and go stay a little longer in a scene for half an hour, what is that infringing upon? How else can you make up that time? What is essential that you might be losing? Uh, so you always have to balance it with what the day looks like. But if it's something great, you got to go with it. Sometimes you have to go back and turn the camera around and get the response to it and and let those magical things happen. And for most of the movie, we weren't running two cameras. So there's a lot of times where I'd have to rewind, go back, flip the camera around, relight for a second, five minutes, and just pick something up yeah. to make that other side work. Yeah. And I just had the confidence to, to do it or seize it. Whereas before I'd be like, oh, you know, I'll figure it out in the editing. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes you just need to know you have it and you right. need to know you have the, the thing it's gonna interplay with and you need the reaction to it. So um, that's where the, the experience does come in and, and cutting the movie in your head, constantly balancing it all, knowing how you can deviate from this to this. And if you're gonna lose this shot, you can make it up with this. And this is actually a better discovery. So. It's like the craft that's having the confidence yeah the craft enables the uh the ability to look for that stuff you know like, it really does yeah and also a lot of it just comes down to prepping correctly and having the right actors and and uh getting the right crew around you so you can thrive like that yeah. you know just it's when you have the right machine the right creatives you can pull off a lot of things and adapt so did you that's get, where experience does come in yeah and did you get to see a lot of directors direct have you been on the set of other directors and watched them? oh tons yeah i would go i i i would always seize the opportunity to go on sets live on sets a lot of shows uh things that friends and people were working on I, every time i just be on set so that's because there's so many um, types of directors you know i mean there's like the there's like these almost like military commanders like they're leading an operation and then there's these sort of like trapped poets and then there's these you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of logistical guys. Like there, there's a, just a real different way. You have to blend, I, I blend a little bit of everything. I, I do think the, the first and foremost is the ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to communicate your ideas no matter how great they are. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can't rally the people around those ideas to execute them mm -hmm. in um, within those time windows each day to hit certain light or hit certain schedule beats, then um, it almost doesn't matter how great the idea is. You know, it's it's um, a medium about execution and to an extent control, but control means you're controlled enough where you can let go and let people do their thing, uh, but you're allowing that because it's a, it's a form of control to let go. Yeah. Um, so vocationally, it blends all those different things. There are those different styles. I've seen so many different types of, of directors and directors that completely default to the DP and yeah. and directors who are the DP. Um, and there's no right or wrong. It's what kind of what works for you to, I think, to craft and communicate the best story possible. So definitely every time I'm on set, I, I learned so much just from watching the interaction, the demeanor, how the actors play with the director and how the crew works with the director. And those are the things I study. Less about the frame and what they're doing, but more about the... Huh behavioral psychological interpersonal yeah. type stuff that's what i like to actually pay attention to on a set i always thought it's like uh being a director if it's like a really big budget movie the ones that i 
I've been on 40, I think I counted out 45 movie sets I've been on um, for stories, you know, because I went back and counted yeah, that's right. articles and stuff. Um, and it occurred to me that uh, with some of the bigger productions, it seems like an invasion. It's like leading an invasion of an idea. Like you, good way to put it. You know, because you have to get. It's not enough for you to have this idea. You need to like take the idea, and uh, a small army of people go and invade that idea, <laughs> and find ways for those people to um, inhabit that idea with you to make it feel like it's their own. So they're yeah. willing to go charge into that too. That is um, imperative. If if you're all alone in that idea, then people just look at it as as a job. They're just mm punch card them there but if you make it their passion project too and you empower them in that way so they're what they're doing in their department they feel like this is great this is going to reflect well upon them right. and it's special then they're going to fight in that same way and that's how you're going to pull off the, the impossibles or the miracles um because you've you've convinced people so there's a lot of salesmanship in in uh indirecting and then you're constantly pushing against all these outside factors that people just want to hit a budget or hit a schedule and you're, well, we're never coming back to the street again at three in the morning right we're not going to recreate it you have to get it now like yeah. it takes five more minutes everyone's going to work their ass off we're going to pull it off there are those moments where you have just have to fight to get those little things you need yeah. and even if someone else doesn't see it if you know you need it like if i know i need it instinct tells me i need it i'm never going to second guess it you know, right. I could logic myself, well, do I really need it? I could make it work like this. If I feel that I need it, I need it. And I will, I'm not ever leaving the set until I get what the hell I need. Right. So oh, that's, that's, um, that's tricky. I think that's what you have to do to protect yourself and, and in the edit. Because ultimately, if the movie's not good, no one blames any other department head. They blame you. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It no, down on you. It's the uh, department uh, head uh, interactions and, and, uh, winning the hearts and minds of people uh, that that that's sort of a part of the directing job i don't necessarily think about you know as much, you know you, you, when i vision directors i picture them talking to actors and and their their dp and getting the lighting and everything and, and shooting the sh uh the scene but i don't think about all the months and months of inspiration and consternation and perspiration at least that's the hardest part like the other stuff's the easy part that's what i was finding. it's like if it was just if people protected and we're all on the same page and hopefully you find movies where everyone is fighting for the same goal. Yeah. Uh, but people aren't, they are, often aren't. So um, that is the, that's the more arduous, difficult, emotionally taxing aspects of, of the job. It's the, the salesmanship and the convincing and the, the relentless all day pushing people to keep going. Yeah. Well, so I said military commander, but there's part con man in there too. <laughs> yeah well, like a pt barnum you got you gotta like you're you're the best spokesperson for this idea you know you're, you're having to communicate it like on this movie um you know we were shooting scenes without certain actors so i'd have to fill in and say all those lines or if there's gaming i'm narrating as people are gaming there's 10 people on stage there's two teams of five in this esports competition i'm having to narrate everything that's happening on these all these there's like eight green screens around them so it's like what is happening on the the various screens and at what point in the match are we? So it's, you're also performing it for them at the pace you want them to live it. So then you can go edit it and hopefully create an even better version of it. But those elements aren't done yet. You know, it's a game that's not, we're, we're, we're working with another game that pre-exists, but we're tailoring it to our movie. So those things aren't done. These aren't totally stratified 
elements and you're just, you're the one person that has it all in your head. Right. And you have to like make them all see and believe it. So there's, a, you wear a lot of different hats on a, on a set at any given time. Sure. Um, you know, and one of the, you know, I saw that uh, the recent fanboys uh, sort of get together. Tell me a little bit about that. And, you know, cause I think right after fanboys, I think when you and I met, I mean, uh, way yeah. back when I'm trying to think of, cause I think we met down at Comic-Con first. Uh, but regardless, uh, there was uh, some fan. Yeah, I believe that was. Yeah, so this that was great. I mean, we've talked about this for years. We were going to do one earlier in the pandemic too. I, I'd reached out to all the actors and I'm like, oh yeah, let's do this. And then Dan Fogler, who's over in London, sure, put together uh, Fogler's Fiction Fest. It was kind of like a a virtual convention. He got all these different people he's collaborated with. He got Mads Mikkelsen to come in and talk about working on, you know. The new Fantastic Beasts, and he's just got all these different comic book creators and people. Yeah. And so he said, "What do you think?" And you know, I reached out to all the guys, and we got everybody to come in. Everyone was emphatically uh, a yes, and we it was just like we picked up where we left off. So you know, they're all like brothers. Like... You know, we had Ajay Baruchel, we had Sam Huntington, oh, Chris man. Marquette, Fogler, myself, um, Adam Goldberg, Adam F. Goldberg. Um, and it was, we talked about what, what would the sequel be? We've always wanted to revisit this and we've had numerous close opportunities to, um, we've, you we came close to doing a fanboys TV show sequel, oh, wow. uh, that Adam, you know, put together through at the, at the time through his Sony deal. And there's always just one final hurdle or one person in the way that, doesn't, yeah. you know, like want it to happen on a on the uh, business side of things that, you know, sure. controls an aspect of it. But I think a lot of those elements have been cleared out of the way now. Oh, I see. And um, the desire is, is equally strong as it's ever been. And it's, it's an opportune time to do it too, because there's so much to say about how fandom has evolved and grown since when the movie was A, made, and B, when it's set. Yeah. Um, when it's set in 1998, nascent days of this modern fandom we're in, you know, if you go to Comic-Con, it was a very different place. And um now you're talking about harry potter franchises and the rebirths of star wars and star trek and you're talking about um marvel universe and dc and right. and just the explosion of ip turned into to film um and new content portals and um it's just it's a great time and when the movie was set you know it wasn't there there wasn't that type of fandom and there wasn't that type of community it was there but it was also subculture more than it was scruffier and scruffier and, and, and less uh, yeah and, and less uh, uh, and so now it's a good time to see these characters grown up and how they would yeah. interact with people and and the characters and fanboys they lived it breathed it wore their heart on their sleeve and they lived for one thing yeah. but i know people parcel off their hearts into these different like i'll give i'll give eight percent to wandavision and i'll give seven percent to the to the to the uh, Snyder cut and I'll do, you know, everything's yeah. just divided up That's funny. and nobody's really all in on anything anymore. Yeah. And that's um, a rock festival. It's not a tour, it's a festival. You yeah, know, like, so it's different. How know, would they sit yeah, with that, you know? Now it's like Coachella, you know, it's like a whole bunch how, of stuff. Yeah, how would these guys feel about the new Star Wars films? I think they'd be, they'd be mixed and divided. And you know, there's a lot of, I did a lot of writing on fanboys. So there's a lot of myself and all those characters and I could see the argument <laughs> that each of them would make pros and cons about. Sure. Uh, 
the way things have gone in Star Wars franchise alone, the you know beyond what's gone on in the greater pop culture. Sure, sure. Well, and uh, and we got to talk about Star Wars, and of course, your classic Ewok apologist. You know, as uh, as <laughs> <laughs> as I like to call you. Uh, uh, that's a funny thing that you did uh, to in uh, such a great collaborative spirit uh, and generous spirit. You you put together that great uh, movie uh, short for uh, the festival I did. Re return of Return of the Jedi for the 30th anniversary of Return exactly. of the Jedi. Yeah, we got a lot of great people in that. Hardwick and oh, Seth Green and Kevin Smith and Pete Wentz and all these people were uh, happy to come on camera and, and talk about Jedi and the magic behind jedi and we did debate ewoks um, <laughs> yeah me i uh uh i don't know if the people listening to the podcast know but like uh i was in george lucas's doghouse for a while i don't know if you remember this but like i actually got like cast out for a while like i uh really oh yeah yeah because uh uh it was before that though it was before that was the big comeback with oh okay yeah uh, but prior to that um before kathleen kennedy took over there was a period of time where I was on the outs because uh, now it can be told. I'll tell the story. The uh, George didn't like a, a, a interview I did uh, with Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars and producer of Empire Strikes Back, who famously sort of uh, exiled himself from the Jedi universe uh, and um, has since passed away. Just passed away. Just a couple. Yeah. Of years. Um, and but in the story, he talked about uh, which ran on the cover of the L.A. Times. Uh, front page with a colored photo on the day of Star Wars celebration in Orlando. So they, it was the John Stewart interview with George, remember? Yeah. Uh, which was really good. Um, but apparently before the, the, they took the stage or after, after whatever they were doing a press appearance, all the questions were about this story or not all the questions, a good number of questions, enough that George noticed that uh, people were asking about, why is the LA Times say, <laughs> Um, the headline, if I recall right, was uh, Toys Turned Lucas to the Dark Side, Producer Says. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and talking about how like he left because uh, uh, the Han Solo character, you know, like was originally supposed to be killed at the in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Was a big crescendo. And that uh, he thought that because uh, uh, that was the best-selling action figure that, uh, that George wouldn't do it and that that was why he left. And so like, that's like <laughs> like that's not a uh, happy story uh, for George to read, oh. and uh, you know, um, I got a call from Lucasfilm. It's like, you know, Jeff, we love you. We're not going to talk to you anymore. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you're not going to get press releases, and you're not going to. We're not going to be able to confirm your. You know, like if you call us for stuff, we're not going to. You know, super sweet, nice people. Uh, you know, that I'd known for years. Yeah, I love everybody up there. They're they're like they're like family. You know who I'm man, but you, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to. Uh, but there are there's there are sensitivity zones, and it's just like working for an institution. Um, you know, uh, when you're you work for a government, or you work for a, a newspaper like the LA Times, or you work for a studio. You know, sometimes there's these forces that are moving things, and uh, individuals can get caught in the middle. And you know, like you, you we yeah. understand what it is. It is what it is. Like I, I, yeah, I was like, okay, I understand, and I'm sorry to hear that, and I'm happy to do a follow up if there's a way to, you know, make this better. Um, and uh, and then a few years later, Kathleen Kennedy came back, uh, came into the picture uh, as George uh, stepped back, 
and none of that's disrespect to George. You know, that's just, I mean, he doesn't, it, I understood exactly. He didn't like the story and he, he didn't think it was credible or, or uh, uh, fair, uh, probably a better way to say it. He didn't think it was fair. But, um, and then Kathleen came in and I had such a great relationship with her and, and it sort of mended fences. And the same person that I had talked to previously called up and said, Jeff, we love you, you're back. You know, like, and it was exactly the same. And there was never, uh, there was never a cross uh, word. Uh, it's actually kind of nice in a way because everybody was really thoughtful and decent on both sides, but understood what, what it was. Uh, but uh, I was told later too, that one of the things that really upset George about that story is that in it, I referred to the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. I said, uh, you know, on the grassy moon or no, on the, uh, the, the the uh, forest moon of Endor, um, Darth Vader meets his end, and uh, uh, and for some reason, it's the, the moment is marked by a teddy bear luau. <laughs> like, That'll do it. Eh? Really did not like teddy bear luau. Uh, like apparently, that was like the really like the, the troubling thing is that I referred to the big emotional funeral. The teddy bear luau. I think that that's kind of the name of my new punk band. I think would be a perfect, perfect. Be good. I'd like to hear that music because I love the <laughs> music and I, and I do love Hawaiian music. So yeah. uh, mix them together. Exactly. That's cool. But uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a strange time, but it's, uh, it is uh, interesting to see the, where uh, Star Wars has come. I mean, you know, like from 99, as you're saying, like, you know, and the guys and fanboys, what's, what it is uh, that they're taking in from, uh, Star Wars and what the promise of the the new prequel uh, or the prequel tr trilogy, um, you know, when it was still the undiscovered country, so to speak. Yeah. You know, uh, till now, you know, and but it's a great time now to be Star Wars fans, wouldn't you say? I mean, like, there's a, there's so many things. It's it's got a great um, you know, it's had some ups and downs the past few years. I think it's on yeah. the upward trend again because of the great work that. Um, Favreau, Dave Filoni and Favreau have been doing on Mandalorian and the most important thing is it's been you feel they're speaking a uh, love language you know yeah There's, it's it's not perfect you know I love the show and it's a little, there, I wish certain episodes were longer or shorter or they went different ways but I love it but um they're the not most important thing about it is why I love it all is because they're doing it out of, with pure joy and yeah. reverence yeah, and I think those are those are two important things, you know. Especially yeah. if you're gonna play in that time period, you have to reverence has to be um, factored in if you're gonna play in that exact window that, sure. of, of the of the galactic history. Um, and they're doing it very reverently, and you can tell they're having fun. And Dave's getting to play on uh, build upon all the skills he built up doing all the animated series, and yeah. And um, he's flexing his muscles in a unique way. And he's just a fantastic guy and, and uh, custodian for, for the brand. And it's great to see that, like somebody like Kathleen Kennedy has embraced him and, and he's relishing his opportunity. So that's great. And I think what the most important thing is the, the window that is now exploded into just like this wide open frontier yeah. of possible shows which are coming. And that's because they've done that and they've showed, though, this is how you can do it technologically, narratively. Mm -hmm. This is the format. This is the tone. This is what Star Wars is. 
and Star Wars, everyone's talking, oh, we're going to make a Star Wars movie. And it's going to be a war film now. And you're like, well, Star Wars was a war film. It's called yeah. Star Wars. And George cut it using, you know, the animatics of old war films. It's like, there's nothing groundbreaking here. It's like, it's an amalgamation of all these wonderful things. And Star Wars is its own genre. Yeah. No, you know, people yeah. try to put it in different boxes and it is its own genre. There's nothing like it and there never will be. Um, it's fantasy and it's, it's pulp and it's space and it's, you know, mythology. And it's all these things wrapped into one Westerns and samurai films and um, with magic on top. And that's what's great is now they've shown people how to go do this in this half hour episodic format which you know a lot of people you know there was the there was another show the underworld show which almost cut off the ground many times and varying price points and they couldn't figure out how to kind of fit it into that that box but now with streaming and things like that i think the windows is finally hit for them to do it correctly because that was a passion project for george to do that yeah. that series and bring yeah. star wars to the quote-unquote small screen but um i think that's the big victory of mandalorian yeah and i like i like JJ though I like the films JJ's JJ's done I love Rogue One yeah yeah it's great and I had fun with Solo I, I just I think my, my experience with Solo is forever too closely fused to um Last Jedi they were just too close together mm. that was a hard time for me yeah I can see that yeah I remember talking to you about Last Jedi like uh and just uh sort of the uh well, I guess if there's language of love, there's language of hate. Like, I mean, if like you feel if you feel like something is, uh, I mean, there's a thin line between passion and and real negative feelings. So it's it, these are these are tricky things for people to to make movies out of or TV shows or anything. It's out hard. Of. I mean, it's it's a well it's a well made movie. I don't like to ever talk negative about it, but I felt like it was more like like a didactic examination or an intellectualization deconstruction of something at an inopportune time mm. and that doesn't go with popcorn no that's the you really should have been this is the this is like the middle of the second the third act yeah. of the greatest saga of all of all time and, yeah. and it just took a, a, a weird step for me i appreciate it in many ways and he's a tremendous filmmaker yeah. um and a good guy, but um, sure. I always I always wear a very fair hat when I talk about Star Wars. I've, since before I was a professional filmmaker, I talked about it because it's it's my favorite thing on earth. So yeah. I always talk about it honestly as a fan first and foremost. Yeah, and I'll talk about it positively, you know, not in a negative or um, you know detrimental way, just constructive, you know. And I just think it's um, there's great things in it. And there's some things that I think uh, you, in, in hindsight, I think we'll be able to trace as to why there's some schisms and in, mm. in fandom and things like that. Yeah, no, I get, I think absolutely. Um, and when I said, Hey, I didn't mean that you hated on it. I just meant that uh, the passions of, of, of uh, yeah. anything, when anything is really, really important to people, the stakes are high. That's what I mean. And, uh, and then and the pendulum swings both ways and um, it's hard to, uh, uh, to talk about the, talk about them uh, sort of dispassionately for a lot of people, you know, uh, but you've always been a very fair person, which I admire. It's one of my uh, favorite Thank qualities you. in person. Um, with, you know, it, it's interesting that Star Wars, as, as you say, it's it's become its own in the, uh, singularity. Uh, and uh, in a way it's seasonal uh, now. Like, uh, you know, I was thinking about this, like with the Beatles, uh, like, a, you know, maybe a decade and a half ago when, 
you had like the Beatles one album one year and then the next year you had Beatles rock band. And then the next year there was a lot of uh, musical and yep. God, the Beatles have become seasonal. Like they, it's like fucking yeah. Swan Lake or like Shakespeare every summer. I, yeah. It doesn't matter if we know all the words or if they're bringing anything new because it's about the interpretation. Like it, the Beatles, you know, were only a band for like seven years and that seven years was a long time ago, but they were doing, you know, they yeah doing, cranking it out. Uh, in a way, Star Wars is kind of, uh, reach that point and they, there's a reason they sell the Christmas decorations right next to each other at Hallmark. I mean, the, because they, these things are, they, they are uh, borderline religions uh, for people, you know, um, it's like a secular, yeah. secular exercise of, uh, and uh, expression. It's a, of uh, a, uh, a spiritual um, affinity, you know, it's like, I mean, that's pretty close yeah. to religion. <laughs> yeah. And you don't want it to get to the point where it's just like it's like the steel wheels tour you know where it's just like <laughs> you're just like, let's go do it again guys you know it's it can't That's go fun. on like that so it's good that there's new uh stories but i do think they need to move into um bolder new eras yeah i think the you can do that without removing the force from it yeah you know I've, yeah. I've tinkered with a lot of star wars stories over the years and i'm sitting on a lot and um, I, I know how to do it. It's, yeah. it's, it's very, it's a, there's very easy ways to capture the magic and also not tread upon or do you have to, have to undermine what came before. Right, because it is or closer to being a genre. It's closer to being yeah. a genre than it is to being a, uh, at that point, because, you know, you, you, you can tap into the certain, um, you know, facets of what exists, but take it into new, entirely new areas, uh, yeah, and, and do so successfully. And I think that that is what needs to be done to, to hold on to people um, who have fatigue with the uh, sort of uh, not not with the, the original film, but with the different permutations of of the original film. Being um, sometimes it feels like a museum piece where people are afraid or uh, or uh, uh, an episode of putting on the hits, uh, you know, lip sync, uh, you know, it's like somewhere in between where it's yeah. where you're too respectful, they're going to knock something over so they don't do anything or, you know, it turns into a Michael Jackson impersonator and just, you know, it's just not really very entertaining for me. Yeah. That's, and that's a hard, if that's the line you're going to walk with something mm -hmm. that has this much power. Right. Right. Uh, and it, it's a vessel to communicate great themes. Yeah. Um, but George will tell you the most fundamental theme is hope. You know, uh, that's what Star Wars is about, yeah. optimism. Um, so I think as long as you um, you play with the basics, like you wouldn't go into Star Trek and and not understand the basic principles of the universe as set up by, by Roddenberry and the, and the foundational yeah. writers. Um, Star Wars is the same thing. You gotta understand what it is. It's, and it's not some of the superficialities um, but it's, it's the feeling, the experience, that's what you're trying to, uh, bottle and, you know, put out there on shelves at galaxy's edge <laughs> yeah. and yeah. beyond, you know, um, but there are, it's vibrant in many formats. And I think it's just, it's, you know, it's great to see that hopefully what Mandalorian's done is, uh, reinvigorated it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing he didn't make that Flash Gordon movie, huh? 
George Lucas. Like you remember, yeah, like thing. you know, like because it started with like he wanted to do a Flash Gordon. Movie. He wanted the right, yeah. He tried to get the rights, yeah. And and uh, and did you see the Star Wars the, the comic book that Dark Horse put out a few years back, which was based on the original script? I did. Yeah, yeah. that was crazy. Like uh, it was it's so good cool. to see. You know, he well, that's what it is. You with any writing, yeah. you know, you go through 30, 40 drafts. You know, good screenplays. You're constantly are rewriting. You're and rewriting all kinds of stuff yeah you're feeling it out and then you characters and actors inhabit these things locations inform what you can do or can't do you get inspired by concept art or production design mm-hmm. a schedule will dictate how long you have to play somewhere or not and that changes the way you approach a scene or shoot a scene um all those things factored into making it what it was um, you know what the, my favorite change though was when he goes hmm maybe han solo shouldn't be a lizard yeah that's, <laughs> not that's a lizard my favorite change. yeah that, you know yeah. what? That's good. Good change. Good note. But it's interesting to see that a lot of those ideas end up in the prequels. Yeah. Being recycled elsewhere. You'll see people like concepts from, from those early designs being pillaged and used in Force Awakens or even Mandalorian, Clone Wars. Um, that's why it's good to have students of it like Dave Filoni in place that, that know where to look yeah. and know how to use it. Yeah. It's like listening to you two, uh, like... Uh, tapes from Octung Baby Sessions where like this song's put together with these lyrics and then it's just everything's mixed oh, yeah, up yeah. and uh, it's the same it's the same creative process but it's so uh, interesting to take it in as an audience member because you know of course we've arrived to it from the place of that it's a wholly realized thing and now we're going back to its deconstruction you know uh, to its original construction so it's 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 such a jolting perception for us but uh uh it is interesting the scraps from here and there uh it makes it much more human labor uh to see yeah. like you know like uh oh look you can see the stitches <laughs> you know like uh absolutely yeah, and because it's so glorious and important yeah it warrants going back there's that fascination um yeah. there's that sustained interest in it that people want to go back and look at those things to understand why to and it's really to illuminate and try and dial into what is that exact kernel of magic that made it happen? What is the what is the thing in the DNA that made it what it is? And um, I think that's why people want to deeply analyze it in yeah. that way. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, what is uh, is there of uh, the other Star Wars projects that we've heard about of various different uh, you know uh, points in the pipeline? Is there one that you're particularly excited about, or one you you think is particularly uh, um uh you know a soft spot for you um i think in the film space i would just i'd say kevin feige mm-hmm. he's just um a great dude and yeah. he loves star wars i used to bump into him down at comic-con and he'd always be in the hasbro booth mm-hmm. and he'd always be looking at star wars toys and he'd awesome. always say, i want action figures like this from marvel because he's a big star wars fan and then he did it you know and he made this incredibly successful um you know, filmic franchise out of out of Marvel. He congealed all these wildly different characters together, and he did it uh, with reverence mm-hmm. and passion. And he, I know uh, he intrinsically understands Star Wars, and I know that he will do um, do something special. I think um, I'd love to see Dave Filoni do a Star Wars movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it's a no-brainer. Um, maybe they keep building out these assets and 
Um, maybe there's a, a film version of one of these shows. Mm-hmm. Well, he did Clone Wars, the movie, you know, when it, uh, yeah, he did. One, but, uh, he did, but that was like a, it was like a, you know, a patchwork of multiple episodes. It wasn't even intended to be that, but he did a, a yeah, good job yeah. translating it to that, sure. um, despite the limitations. But I think he's, he's ready now to do something on a bigger scale, on the biggest format, you know, feature film. Yeah. Um, clever shows, Kenobi. Yeah. Kenobi looks great. Um, what I've seen from Cassie and Andor behind the scenes and stuff looks good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot out there. I think, are all of them going to stick? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if a lot of the concepts are going to stick. Getting Ewan McGregor back in the, the Jedi universe is very, it's very nice. Yeah. And Hayden. Hayden's an amazing guy and he also loves, deeply loves Star Wars. Yeah. So I think it's going to be an exciting time for him to come back to that role. Now, I want to ask you a ridiculous question um, because I love ridiculous questions. With Star Wars, uh, if you were going to do a Broadway show based on a Star Wars character, what would it be? Broadway show based on Star Wars. Because I'm thinking we have Beetlejuice Broadway, we have, uh, you know, we've seen uh, different movies uh, reach the stage. Uh, Is it a musical? Yeah, I want to see a dance you want story. To do a, a musical? Yeah, what do you want to see? Come on. I think it's you know, I would love I don't to, have I, I don't have one yet. I'm just thinking about it. <laughs> I wrote a good story. I was gonna do it as a radio drama of um of Luke Skywalker, his pilgrimage to to Ilum to get the crystal to make his green saber, to do oh. what every Jedi had done before, to go on this journey uh, without a roadmap that the other Jedi's had. Uh, and he's doing it at, at, at the most difficult point in his life when he's lost his hand, mm. he's lost his saber, and he's lost his way. And his father from the deleted scenes of Return of the Jedi, it, 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 he's in his head relentlessly, mm. almost haunting him. And he's got to basically say, you know, I'm not just, I'm not content with just being a rebel. And this is a great path that you're on, Lan Han, but I have to go do something else, tangential to this, to get my friend back, to get myself back on, mm. on, uh, on the path I'm supposed to be. It's a very um, inward journey. Yeah. But it's really, it's really cool. I hope I get to bring it to life one day. But that, that something like that, where it's a character driven and it's smaller, yeah. um, and it fits in between what we know. Right. But it, it perfectly fits. But there's a reason to tell that story because it's one of the most interesting points in Luke Skywalker's life, which hasn't been touched upon. That's where when he's he probably gone the it. most introspection. Yeah, when you first mentioned it, it reminded me uh, for a moment of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, uh, which is a very different story. Yeah, but very different, but that was great, you know, Alan Dean Foster, it was like really the first piece of expanded Star Wars yeah. IP. I love all those those old books. I love the old um, Brian Daly, yeah. original Han Solo novels, and the I love the NPR radio dramas. I love all that that era. I think it's a, it's a, it was a very exciting, fresh time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. the way they took great liberty with their ideas too. You know, yeah. they weren't as precious as we almost are now with how we handle Star Wars with kid gloves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they ran through the ringer. Uh, you know, uh, conceptually, you know, with yeah. Mind's Eye. I mean, it's like completely, totally different. Um, that's interesting. I I don't have an answer myself for the Broadway musical, but I think it's I think it's worth thinking about. I think that there's some really corny ideas out there that I will embrace and, and treasure uh but uh you know the cantina you know there, there could be a 
sort of a cabaret uh, style cantina music that would be. Or something around, so be something around Leia. Uh, yeah. Younger Leia, yeah. right around that time. Yeah. Making this decisions. She's got her princess song. You know, yeah. Princess song. That's a life day song. I don't know if Jar Jar is ready for his, uh, his, you know, I don't think that that's going to happen. Maybe the Jawa. It's never happening. That's not going to happen. No. That's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe it's not a good idea technically, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just think that there's some, there's probably some really good fan art posters for musicals that will never be made. That's probably the best destination for this concert. I would like to see that the last thing that uh, Kylo Ren did, that Ben Skywalker did when he transferred life back into Rey, mm -hmm. was he also transferred a baby. Nice. Nice. That's good. And Skywalkers do live on. Nice. And in that transference of life force, um, there was another gift. That'd be cool. You could do a yeah. musical after that. There you go. There you go. That's Well, that's better than my job, uh, job of the Hut idea. So... <laughs> No one wants to see Java sing. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. He's going to make you hear him sing. Oh, oh, oh. Well, fantastic, man. Well, well this is such a, uh, a fun conversation. I just want to thank you for uh, carving out a, a time on the weekend and a new father and new project. And you got so much going on, dude. I just really appreciate it. Of course, man. Thank you. Always a joy to talk to you. I, I've always in, uh, loved our encounters and our, our conversations and yeah it's we think alike so it's good to always catch up and and uh nerd out absolutely absolutely and thanks so much and uh um i think maybe uh you know maybe an ewok musical maybe that's what it's going to bring us back together maybe that's what this you know if we could revisit the the, the songs that were cut out of return of the jedi the original ones the yub uh, nub and stuff um hell yeah <laughs> did you just say yum yum num nub <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You know, they never say Ewoks in the movie, right? Ever? The word Ewoks is never uttered? No, I think it was just in the toys. Everything was the toys. I mean, that's how we knew. Well, them. most of the character names, it's, that's kind of how we we knew them, you know, the Hammerheads and et cetera, until they were given, you know, West End Games gave them alternate names like Moana Don and stuff like that. Like, almost everything was unnamed and unexplored yeah. in the movies. They were just, like, passed by in the background. They were like, the guy with the walrus you know? teeth or... The, Hammerhead dude. Oh, Walrus Man. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All about the toys, man. Uh, Kevin Smith said that that was the, the, I think he was the one that sort of put up the, forward the idea that really what we all loved was the movies in our heads that we made with the action figures. I always thought that oh, was a good point. Absolutely. It is. It's what made, that's why I'm a storyteller. That's why it was, it was that. It was dreaming in between chapters. What could you do? And, and how would you do it? Yeah. You know, Star Wars was that initial sandbox that every kid was gifted, like with the with the tools. Like, go play. Here's the toys. Here's the movies. Go imagine it. Yeah, and I think that's why it made us all movie critics too, because we're like, wait, I like my ending better. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it made I that's why the prequels were so. You know, I think judged so. Uh, I would say harshly is because they were all held up against the the um, the raw imagination in our head, as opposed yeah. to reality. And this. Yeah. You know, not looking at this is George's or his movies, independent movies, and what does he want to tell, and how does this play upon, like you say, those early Star Wars stories. It was going back to some of the ideas he felt was time to explore in a new way. Yeah, I even think his ideas for what the sequels would have been were pretty fascinating, as he told them to Mark Hamill on set back in the '80s, and has he kind of teased yeah. them over the years. Um, 
you know, I guess we'll find out one day what his versions were going to be because yeah. I know he was prepping them. Fantastic. Well, that's a good yeah. way. We'll leave it with a dot, dot, dot. Well, yeah. We will continue. So, well, uh, Kyle, it's so good seeing you. And uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And I uh, hope we get, get you back on here. Anytime, man. I'm around. Uh, maybe when I'm promoting the, the movie or the new or a couple of new books I've got, then uh, for sure. That sounds Anytime, good. Anytime, really. All right, man. Thanks, man. All good right, to see care. you. Good seeing you too. Be well. Cheers. Well, that was an interesting conversation. It's always fun whenever you find someone who's so into what they make films about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I'm glad you liked it, Garrett. How are you? <laughs> Good. How about you? I'm doing well. Good. Well, we also have uh, Maya here with us. She's an executive assistant at Heavy Metal. Yes, I'm happy to be here on the podcast. It's been great listening to the past episodes, and I enjoyed listening to Kyle talk about his projects. It's really great to be in an industry where the art is being produced instead of analyzed because my academic background, we're doing lots of criticism and analysis, but it's really great to be in the workroom, in the factory where it's being conceived and forged, so. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun factory too. Well, welcome, welcome Maya, welcome to the team and uh, yeah, this welcome to the mind space. Yeah, and, and thanks Garrett for setting all of this up. Um, I've been uploading some stuff, but you've been the real technical mind that makes sure everything is up and running. So for the audience, you're, you're kind of hearing just our talking shop about how this podcast is produced, this wonderful audience that you're hearing, how it's coordinated. <laughs> <laughs> between a bunch of us yeah clearly um, jeff's not in charge of tech <laughs> he steers I'm, the ship you're our spiritual overlord well there there i'll take that that's very kind because no one will trust me with the remote control so but uh but kyle what uh is uh i think it's just such a genuine guy i think that probably came across as soon as you hear the guy talk you can really sense his enthusiasm uh, oh yeah and uh, i always get a lot of energy uh, from talking to him. He always makes me want to go and do more stuff, which I think is, uh, that's one of my favorite kind of people. Uh, and he loves that Star Wars thing, you know? I don't know. What's that Star Wars thing all about? <laughs> it's actually really interesting because I don't want to get into how our culture gender. I, I mean, again, I grew up on Star Wars, so it's, even though it's kind of still, I think, considered a boy thing, um, I actually was more familiar with Kyle Newman for his music videos that occur in so-called, I guess you could call it girl culture, the ones that he's done for Style by Taylor Swift and Summertime Sadness by Lana Del Rey, which I'm not sure among male pop culture, but in, in my pop culture, those videos were iconic and inescapable whilst I was growing up, so... Absolutely. No, he's got such a great visual style um, and um, he really, really works. He works really well with, you know, powerful personalities and interesting personalities, you know, as far as uh, in his collaborations. And I think that that's one of the, like, uh, that speaks highly of him. Uh, and those videos are fantastic. Yeah, they're absolutely fantastic. And I think music video making is such a interesting and changed uh, medium, you know, it, it's so different. I used to go on a lot of movie uh, music video sets 
back in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, when they had really, really huge budgets and MTV was still like a real force. And it's, now it just represents such a different thing. And I think there's so much more creatively interesting now because they're all over the place. There, there's, there's really all kinds of different um, takes on it. Back then it was, it was a little more cookie cutter, I think, a little bit. Can we ask what music videos those were? Or if you can remember any distinctive uh, ones? Yeah, no, I was on like, um, see My Chemical Romance. Uh, I was on uh, two or three of their vi music videos. Uh, I was on a set of uh, two or three, no, two, two Flaming Lips videos, which was really interesting because their videos are really interesting. I remember there's people running around uh, with meat taped to their bodies being chased by, uh, some sort of giant flatulent prison guard. And so you knew uh, Wayne Coyne before we had him on? I did. I, <laughs> I, I interviewed Wayne um, when he was in a bubble, plastic bubble at Coachella backstage. Yeah. And I interviewed him on the, set of a uh, on the set of a music video in LA. And then I interviewed him in Austin at uh, South by Southwest. And I still felt like he was meeting me for the first time during our interview. Like, yeah. I don't think I made much of an impression on him, but that was awful long time ago. It was an awful long time ago. Sounds like you made an impression in the interview though, this time around. Boy, it, uh, it did. Uh, <laughs> you know, Maya, you weren't here for that one, but it, we got into a whole long conversation about um, uh, a personal incident in, in Wayne's life where he was at gunpoint during a robbery uh, in, his, in his teens and how that's echoing in his life now because he used it as a uh, material for a song. Uh, he imagined a song of what it would have been if he had been shot that night. And it's him talking to his mother. Uh, so it's like kind of a, a really interesting way to kind of go back and do a, a personal alternate reality song, I suppose. Uh, not to sound kind of overblown about it, but it's very affecting. And he and I got into a conversation about how things at that age in your teens really do affect you for your whole life. Or, and because uh, my sister, not teens, I was in, I was 23 when my sister was killed. She was murdered uh, in a street robbery. And uh, so we got into a very long conversation about that, which I don't think he was ex expecting. And I certainly wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. But I, we, I heard more about that podcast from people um, than uh, I've heard about anything uh, in quite a while, like the, the what was noticeable was that the people that did reach out, they didn't just reach out with like a little note; they re reached out with like long notes, um, talking about things that happened to them and stuff like that. Um, so we should uh, we should get Wayne back on the show sometime, Garrett, just to uh, kind of uh, finish that conversation that we had with him the first time. And my, I think you'd be really interested in him. I don't know if you're a fan of the music, but. The new Flaming Lips album is fantastic, and since Wayne was on the show, which has just been a few, you know, like probably two months ago, three months ago, um, I've been still getting texts. I got a text from him today. Uh, he still sends me texts with like just pictures of his daughter, just out of nowhere, just random, <laughs> you know, no, no explanation. <laughs> just uh, it's just like these like the little uh, snapshots of his life, uh, kind of like an Instagram feed almost, but. Um, just a lovely guy. And he sent me a t-shirt. Oh, wow. I got a t-shirt. That's yeah. awesome. The only guest that gave us a t-shirt. Well, <laughs> me a t-shirt. I'll get t-shirts for you guys. Okay. 
I don't so. think there needs to be a reason. I think sometimes it's good to have someone you feel truly safe to share both the little happy things and, and the significant things. So, I mean, I think that's a wonderful thing you've created and should be very proud of. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, can get, uh, I, I do get a kick out of it. And also because I've enjoyed his music for so long. Um, uh, during that same podcast, which uh, apparently I got hit with a truth serum dart before that episode. Um, I also talked about how the, uh, I went to see the lips in college when I was 17, 18, 18 years old. And uh, I took LSD for the first time. So that was a big night. It was a big <laughs> podcast talking about that. That was the first great mind space experience. <laughs> well, you know what I realized is I'm still at that show. This is all, everything, everything since then has been kind of Jacob's Ladder, you know, so like uh, any second now, I got to get back there and uh, relive this whole life, so. You got to have to go no. up to like, you don't understand, we met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think that's a great point that we can, we can apply to Kyle Newman. Like at the beginning, you said, you know, what's the deal with that Star Wars thing? I think that it had an impact on a lot of people at a very critical time in their lives. Oh, yeah. Um, so in, in the same way that, you know, music or musical experiences or personal events stick with you from that formative period that, that the pop culture you consume does. I was reading there's an interesting, I think, study that it found that the music you listen to in early adulthood and adolescence, those, you know, formative years, it, it really shapes your musical taste going forward. Oh, yeah. um, behind, you can't, the audience can't see this, but Jeff has a Bruce Springsteen poster behind him from the Born to Run photo shoots. And that's definitely the case for my dad. Um, it was the music he heard and blew him away when he was like 15 and he still listens to the Bruce Sirius channel almost exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> so if Bruce. any of you are teenagers, be very careful about what you listen to right now. <laughs> yeah. Consume with caution, right? Yeah. Kyle Newman saw Star Wars as a young kid and now is, is you know, just making Star Wars and fan stuff and... Yeah. I think we're talking about like the music thing right now because I was thinking about this earlier today. I was at a wedding I went to in Houston and I was driving back to uh, Fort Worth today listening to Arctic Monkeys mm. on my drive. And that's who I really listened to a lot in high school. I was like, wow, this is so nostalgic. Like, <laughs> it's taking me back there. Yeah, it's amazing. It transports. Uh, it's got a transportive power and it's, it's phenomenal. And, and uh, I haven't seen that study, Maya, but I 100% believe it because I think the music that people are passionate about when they're 15, 16, 17 years old is becomes baseline for, for their sensibilities and they kind of hold on to it. And I think at that age, we're also so emotionally available. Uh, we're so ready to bond um, with people or define ourselves by either embracing things or pushing things away, whichever it is, probably both. Um, and I think that, that in that state of the, the emotional you know, sort of vulnerability and, and, and formation, all the music that gets in just sticks. You know, I mean, I think that it becomes the soundtrack of, of our sensibility and the soundtrack of our, our uh, you know, our heart, you know, like I think it really sticks, sticks with us. But boy, it's bad if it's bad. <laughs> you know, uh, you have, although, 
you, you hold off even the stuff you don't like, you know, like, uh, you know, you have guilty pleasures. Nobody has guilty pleasures from when they're 35 or 40, but they have guilty pleasures from when they're 16, you know? Do you guys have any, like, of the, the drive rock station where you are? Or is that just a Chicago thing? No, no, we no. have a we have a rock station in Chicago that plays 60s, 70s, 80s rock. It's called The Drive. And their slogan is the soundtrack of our lives. Oh, that's cool. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I even had a history teacher who used that to explain the concept of zeitgeist and what you said, sh shared sensibility. Mm. So that's interesting. Uh, it certainly, it certainly does. Uh, I love music, you know, and uh, it it's a kindred it's kindred to um, uh, invisible magics. I I, I I was reading something. I think it was Wynton Marsalis, but I'm not sure. I was talking about the way that music. Um, it's always present with, uh, I'm, I'm not saying it very well, but that it has a common uh, 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 shared bond with invisible magics. That's why, you know, uh, ritual and, and uh, the different things that we do to celebrate a, a birth, a death, or a, a, a marriage, a bonding, that all involve music and the way that it makes us kind of, uh, you know, connect to others. I think it's all about connection. You know, it's like when you look, music is like an ocean, like we're all, when you're in it, you're part of everything around you, you know, whether you, you, you uh, want to or not sometimes, so. But, well, it's uh, interesting, the staying power of a lot of stuff, like a lot of the bands that like my dad grew up on are some of my favorites now. And going back to Kyle Newman, uh, he was born, I think like a year before Star Wars came out. And yet that made a huge impact on him. So he don't, he definitely didn't see it in theaters, the first one, but you know, it's kind of defined him. Well, he probably saw it because they re-released it. Yeah. Turn well, it yeah. Excuse me, sir. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we probably saw it when they, I think they re-released it in, uh, in either 80 or 82, probably 80 before Empire Strikes Back, but I'm not sure mm -hmm. about that. But, but that's when they added the uh, episode four. Because uh -huh. I saw it when it came out. Uh, it didn't have episode four at the beginning. It just said a long time ago, you know, and just starts, it just said um, a new hope. Um, oh, it didn't even say new hope. It just, it just started episode four, new hope came. Oh, wow. So it started out being called episode four. It wasn't episode one. It, it was never called episode one, but, at the beginning, yeah. it, but they, it was labeled episode four, I think when they re-released it, uh, oh. they ch changed the beginning. And if I'm wrong, boy, will I find out. <laughs> some of that i'm just going off of memory but i'll tell you this about um the way things affect us i saw star wars uh you know i was born in 1969 it came out in may of 77 so i was still a little guy and i, I but i remember it just being blown away and i just the music and, and the way it looked was so powerful um to me and to everybody but when i went to see empire strikes back when it came out i was so freaking excited uh, in elementary school, I had, you know, um, a different Star Wars t-shirt I wore every day. Like Monday was Chewbacca, Tuesday was the Storm, Wednesday, every single, I, I, oh, I, here's the crazy thing. I still have all those shirts. I have, I have 18 t-shirts from Star Wars from the 70s uh, that I wore as a kid. Um, and when Empire Strikes Back came out, I was so um, very, very excited. I went to see it. I remember the theater where I went to see it and everything very, very distinctly. And you know, you get a bucket of popcorn, right? And sit, you sit in your, in your lap and you watch the movie. And um, I was kind of a chubby kid. I was 
I was, uh, there was a Wendy's commercial uh, on television in those days called Where's the Beef? There's like this old lady, she would get a burger and it didn't have enough food in it. She goes, where's the beef? Uh, in my school, I would, they called me the beef. Like, <laughs> this was like that, that was the cruelty of my youth. Uh, uh, so I wasn't a skinny kid, okay? So when I go and I sit in this movie and I have this popcorn on my lap and the movie starts and you know, Hoth and then Yoda, everything's happening. Uh, fast forward, I looked down, I had not eaten a single piece of popcorn because I was so, in, and now think about that for a second, like, like what, this like blows Pavlov's like theories to hell because I, there's buttery hot popcorn sitting underneath my nose and like it's designed that you're supposed to just eat it, salt and you're just gonna eat the whole thing. And I was so excited, I didn't even notice. And so I think that that's probably the best movie review I could ever give a movie so good you won't eat the popcorn that's sitting under your nose like uh just always thought that was kind of fun consumed unconsciously yeah and and the fact that your brain was so full and engaged with what was going on in front of you that you didn't even have those (laughs) those two little dendrites free to prompt you to eat your popcorn i'm lucky that my respiratory system works better than 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 my popcorn eating system because that could have been a problem yeah, it could <laughs> but I was like, no time to chew, must watch. Uh, but uh, yeah, Star Wars for sure. Uh, you know, I think only like maybe Wizard of Oz is the only thing I could compare it to as far as the way that it, it's, uh, it changed the way people watch movies. It changed the way that they uh, thought about story and it's, it changed the way that uh, people that came later made movies, it, you know, uh, there's so many filmmakers I've talked to that talk about Star Wars, like so many that it was a huge reason for them to do what they did. Uh, and even filmmakers that you wouldn't necessarily expect, ones that don't necessarily do science fiction or, or, or big spectacle films, it still, it still uh, you know, turned the dial uh, for them. Um, but uh, so what's uh, with Kyle, uh, I think people were, pretty excited to see the fanboy sequel. I think that that's kind of an exciting, it's an exciting idea. I think all those, uh, a lot of the people in that film went on to bigger and better things. And um, I'll be interested to see how that project goes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to see, again, because Star Wars is so defined by the passion of everyone involved, how it's, it's just a good to see that reflected back at you from the screen, you know, like like you're inside one of those heat ovens where it's just everything keeps magnifying. Garrett, do you have any, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you have any early fond memories of Star Wars? Yeah, um, I grew up in Wyoming, so a lot of snow. So Empire was my favorite because of the Hoth sequence. I could play that with my friends outside all the time. I, I had a sled that I would bring inside that I would pretend was the Millennium Falcon because it was one of those saucer sleds. Oh, nice. Oh, and cool. I'd play with my action figures on that while the movie was playing on VHS, uh, skipping over parts because we played it so much. Uh, oh. So yeah, a lot of... And then we had a friend move in who was... His family, his entire family was absolutely obsessed with Star Wars. He moved in next door. And it was both fun and annoying to watch the movie with his dad because every scene he'd be like, Oh, you know, well on this one, this happened here. Oh, on the day of filming, George Lucas did. And we're like, wow, this guy. (laughs) 
And this it was, was like waving. 2004 or something. So like I I didn't know what the internet was really. Uh, so he was just you know rattling off facts. I was like, how does he know all this? That's great. That's funny. You know, and, and when you know before VHS, you know, it was such a different experience being a Star Wars fan because like like I said, I saw it in '77, and then I saw that re-release mm-hmm. in like '80 or whatever it was, '82, one somewhere. There. And then um, I didn't see Star Wars again, and for like four years because you couldn't just watch it it wasn't ever on tv it was never on cable and you know, what there was and even when you had vhs it wasn't like uh, the easiest thing to get uh, you know for a long time so uh it, it it used to be such an event you know that's why we were all so excited about that star wars holiday special that came on <laughs> the single worst thing ever made uh um have you yeah. seen the new holiday special uh-uh. it's a lego star wars holiday special Oh, okay. It's on Disney Plus. <laughs> oh, I haven't watched it yet. I, have not watched I haven't it. seen it either, but I've heard it's a lot better than the first one. Yeah, the, the coolest thing about the first one, which is worth going back for, actually, is, is, is the Boba Fett cartoon. They did an animated short, uh, basically introducing Boba Fett. Uh, and he he's kind of like, uh, he hustles Luke Skywalker into thinking he's a good guy, and then he betrays him. Um, so it's like a totally random wow. thing, um, but also shows that Mandalorians have been on, you know, uh, leading the charge for Lucasfilm on television for a long time. I mean, the best part of the first, that's the first time Star Wars was ever on TV in any sort of, you know, uh, format that wasn't just a promotion or something. Something that was actually, you know, an official production and uh, Boba Fett was front and center in it and with that cartoon. And then of course that Mandalorian Mandalorian seems to be doing pretty well these days. Uh, I don't have anything that interesting myself because I was a child when the prequels came out. So those were shamefully the first Star Wars that I was passionate about. I remember being extremely in love with Attack of the Clones of all things. That was my favorite. And so, but my dad, who did not go on to, to become a creative in any sense. He's an accountant and a jock, but he, I think like everyone, he adored Star Wars and he was so distraught that upon leaving, like that he had no more money to go see it again, that he and all his friends on his block would organize all these money-making schemes. Uh, I think they converted their garage into a haunted house of sorts. Like they would put on sheets and like charge people like a nickel to come in and get scared. They would ask uh, their moms for like spare hot dogs and like sell hot dogs on the block, do lemonade stands all. And at the end, they would all pull their money together and just go see Star Wars again. They saw it again and again. They would just go back and see it endlessly. And then, you know, it was, a, it was a cycle. They'd get a hit and then be depressed and they'd crash and then they need to scrounge up the money to, for their next Star Wars hit. It was very cute. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's amazing how long Star Wars was around in theaters too, because things were different with that. Yeah. You know, like I, I didn't realize for a long time the way movies were released, you know, like until Jaws, like if a movie came out, it would open in New York and LA and Chicago and stuff, but the physical reels that they would send to the theaters, they didn't have enough for everywhere. So it would go to those cities and then it would go to secondary cities and then tertiary cities. So like you could, if you lived in a certain, you know, 
communities, you would see a movie that came out six months ago would just be opening in your town. Mm-hmm. So it was like a concert tour. You know, the, the, the thing was on tour. Um, it's just so hard to imagine now. Jaws was the, but Jaws was the first one that really changed that. Jaws was the first movie that was released everywhere on the same day uh, and had a national marketing um, and it's one of the reasons that movie became so huge, you know. Yeah, and I just watched uh, Raging. What was it? Um, Raging Bulls. Raging Bulls and uh, oh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls yeah. documentary. And they were talking about that how like when Jaws came out, it was unprecedented that it opened in all these series at the same uh, cities at the same time. Yeah, and it changed. It really did. Yeah. People were kind of like, oh, maybe it was a fluke, and then Star Wars did it, and they were the studios were like, okay, we should do this uh, with everything now. Yeah, and then that led to also, you know, Happy Meals, uh, because now if you had national marketing, you could do things like, uh, you know, all the licensing deals and, and uh, uh, you know, kind of time things all together uh, and have toys ready and things like that as well. George you know, Lucas might be the most business savvy creative. Like he knew how to market everything. He knew, like, yeah, I think he got most of his money from like merchandising. Yeah, and some of that is some of that was serendipity on his part too, because you know if you look at um, the history of Fox, you know Fox uh, Studios, 20th Century Fox, um, they had released, uh, they had had real luck with toys with Planet of the Apes. Um, you know, Planet of the Apes was the first great sci-fi franchise, really. I mean, it was the it was the first one that had a multi-part, um, you know. Uh, theatrical released story. I mean, there was like five movies, you know, no, there had been movies with sequels before, but that was the first one that really kind of, mm. kind of created the template for what would come later. And Fox had had great luck with the toys on that, but then they got burned with a movie called oh, Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle, um, which somehow got an Oscar nominated for best picture. And it's not, it's just not, it's just such a bad movie. Um, with Rex Harrison, uh, there's really nothing I can say good about the film, but they they had high hopes for it, and they they had inundated the marketplace with more merchandise than anything had been prior to that, uh, or certainly as much as anything prior to that. Uh, so there was Doctor Doolittle record players and Doctor Doolittle lunchboxes and Doctor Doolittle, and they did little. They they didn't sell, you know, and they were so uh, burnt by that that uh, when Star Wars came around, um, you know, no one really knew what it was going to be. And they just, you know, Lucas said, well, can, just give me the toys. And they, they said, sure, fine, sucker. <laughs> so they gave him the toys. So like, that's just, it yeah. never would I don't think it would have happened before that. I don't think it would have happened after. I think it was not only uh, his business acumen or, you know, the business acumen of, of whoever was working with him, but, um, also a little bit of, you know, some serendipity. And also, you know, if, if King World features, I mean, George originally wanted to do Flash Gordon yeah. um, and he couldn't get it because of the King features, um, you know, who had the, the, who owned the cartoon strip character um, wanted so much that it just wasn't workable. It wasn't a workable deal. So he's like, fine, I'll just have to change all my characters around. Um, and, uh, you know, if you go back and look at what he, I mean, think of what if, what if King had said, okay, sure. You know, like, and he made Flash Gordon film, no matter what that Flash Gordon film would have been, it wouldn't have been Star Wars. It wouldn't have had the effect it had because there was an ownership of that generation of Star Wars 
if Star Wars had been a remake of Flash Gordon, I don't think it would have been. I, I think the, well, the characters certainly wouldn't have been the same, you know, because there was a long tradition of what the characters were in Flash Gordon, and even if they were changed, they they wouldn't have been the same. And um, uh, and it's funny because actually that segues pretty well into this week's essential shelf. Um, the essential shelf. Every week we try to suggest a graphic novel that. Uh, uh, you, the listener, should check out if you have not, especially if you're new to comics. And this one's kind of a funky one. Um, uh, I remember when this was announced, it was announced, if I remember right, on April 1st, when I first heard about this thing, so I didn't believe it when I first heard it. But Dark Horse Comics put out a book um, called uh, The Star Wars, which is the original title of the screenplay that George Lucas wrote, it would eventually become just Star Wars, it would eventually become episode four, New Hope, uh, et cetera. But um, three years before Star Wars came out, there was a script called The Star Wars. And that's the script that uh, Dark Horse Comics adapted into uh, a comic book um, a few years back. Uh, J.W. Rinsler uh, and Lucas Books was, uh, was the point person on it. And Mike Mayhew, who had drawn Avengers for Marvel, uh, did the art, and it's just such a different, but not. It, it's like a it's like a Bizarro universe version of Star Wars. Um, you know, they have laser swords; they're not called lightsabers. You know, um, and the big change is uh, you know Han Solo. Uh, he's well, he's a lizard. <laughs> you know, and that's different. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I don't remember that in the movie. Um, I'm pretty sure. I don't. I don't think that. That's not in the movie, right? I don't think so. No, that would have made Indiana Jones harder too if they got the same actor. It really, really would have. It really, really would have. So, um, but anyway, it's called The Star Wars, and uh, you can find it um, uh, anywhere you can find Dark Horse Comics, uh, the great publisher out of Oregon, and it's a kind of an eccentric addition to our essential shelf, essential shelf, but. Uh, the story that started back in 74. Uh, it's just too interesting for Star Wars fans because it's got such, such an anthropological feel to it. You feel like you're going back and digging through like the ruins of of, a civil, of Atlantis or something. This could have been, this would have been, what would this have been like? And it, I, it makes a great gift if you know any longtime Star Wars fans who, you know, uh, probably if they're longtime Star Wars fans, they probably own some merchandise already or some uh, different totems of their fandom. Uh, and this is kind of an oddball one that they could have missed. Uh, so it's one that uh, I suggest you add, check out. So that's this week's Essential Shelf. And that came out back in 2013, if I remember right. I can't imagine having like a sustained creature character, like a humanoid creature at that scale in the in the 70s with the practical effects they had yeah well, i feel like the creature chewbacca. effects were really great for like those momentary glimpses when, right. when chewbacca is covered in fur so you don't really have to do things like yeah. you know eyes and and you know i'm yeah. just picturing a whole movie where like centered on like han solo would look like like that lizard bounty hunter bosk yeah <laughs> Like, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. And this it's like the, the, the front of Star Wars, like so many little things that like, you think about it and you're like, I don't think it would have been as successful if they just had that one little thing. Like, 
Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's also interesting too, to trace the sort of, you know, like I say, anthropological part is, is to look at the things that George took from other places, you know? Um, because, you know, if you go back to Flash Gordon, um, the movie serials with Buster Crab, you know, there's, there's, I was watching one they have, you know, the, and, and the, the comics, they, they do have fire swords and stuff. And, and you could see, oh, wow, you know, the, he, he, he just really liked those and he turned them into lightsabers, you know, the, the things he picked to choose from other existing things. Because we think of Star Wars as, as being uh, an original thing. And of course it is, but it's also a synthesis of so many things, you know, the Seven Samurai and Sergio Leone movies and uh, Flash Gordon. Um, you ever seen The Hidden Fortress, the Kurosawa movie? Oh, I have not. That one is like the plot is heavily taken from that. It's he said something along the lines of like wanting to show the story through the two lowest characters because that movie's told through the eyes of like two servants. Hmm. Uh, there's also a badass princess that everyone's like trying to protect, and then she turns out to be just you know kick ass and <laughs> capable, capable yeah. person. Yeah, and and John Carter. If you go back to John Carter, Warlord of Mars, which you know uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs created uh, in 1912. Uh, so, which predates uh, Flash Gordon, um, you know, the, there's a group of, of powerful um, cloak-wearing holy knights called the, the Jada. <laughs> I think, excuse me? Like, uh, say what? The Jada? Really? Like, you know, like, that's kind of crazy. Um, you know, there, there's all these little things that... Uh, that uh, percolate through and, and uh, for fans that have enjoyed it for a long time, I don't think it undermines uh, Star Wars and I certainly don't mean to disparage the creativity of George Lucas because uh, the man has he's done plenty um, for uh, the history of cinema and, uh, and he's the Thomas Edison of Hollywood um, with his, what he's done for the way that movies look and sound and the way they're presented. Um, but it is interesting to see the places that he, he took things, you know, like, uh, and, and who would have thought you could make a mashup of John Carter and Lawrence of Arabia and, you know, the Hidden Fortress and, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly and whatever else, you know, is in there. Uh, it's, it's a pretty, pretty potent mix, but uh, uh, you guys should definitely check out the Star Wars Maya. I bet your dad would like that. I think it would make him like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, all right, that's, uh, I guess, unless there's anything else, we'll see you next week for our next show. Yeah, it sounds good, guys. Well, I, uh, I, Maya, I want to welcome you aboard again, and uh, this should be a lot of fun, and I've got a good feeling about this. All right, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm incredibly honored to be here, and for you to think that my input and, and takes are, are worth this podcast, so thank you. Yeah, for sure. That sounds good. We'll do it again. I'll see you guys next week. See you guys later. Bye.